Welcome to another edition of A More Perfect Union. Well, I'm building habitat houses. It tells me that America has a great orientation toward helping people in need. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is a program toward a more perfect union. I'm Frank Falvey, your host, and I want to welcome Jeff Roy. Jeff, are we still making sausages up at the State House? Boy, we're, we're making more than you could ever eat. Uh, we'll, we'll feed the world with the amount of uh, legislation we're producing. 167 bills on the last day of the session. Uh, wow. And, uh, we have another one on tap for, for this afternoon. And Nat Lear, how are the children? Hi, Frank. They're doing well. Um, you know, schooling is, is the challenge of, of the times for everyone with uh, little kids. And PJ, PJ is the best editorial writer in the U.S. And you can Ruh -ruh. see, you can read his editorials if you go to franklin.tv or you go to wfpi.fm and you click on what's on, uh, and even sometimes he blesses us with a poem. How are you this morning, PJ? Today, as always, I will officially be in fine fettle. It's, it's a thing with me. <laughs> and how do you spell fettle? F-E-T-T-L-E. And... We have Michael. Michael, you're going to introduce our guests this morning in the topic. Yes, Frank, good morning. And uh, I'm very happy to introduce our guests today. These are two local uh, small business owners, uh, and they are from various parts of the country. They lived in uh, Florida. They're currently here with a home remodeling and home construction company, uh, Alliance Construction, uh, Emerson Kloss III, and Emerson is the incoming president of the Massachusetts Home Builders and Remodelers Association, and his son, Emerson Kloss IV. So they are a numbered family. Emerson is the third. Uh, and his son is Emerson IV. They are wonderful folks, and with uh, pure transparency, uh, these two gentlemen, along with their wonderful crew of workers, did some extensive work on my house, and I got to know them over a year of remodeling my own place. So welcome, gentlemen, to our, uh, our program, A More Perfect Union. Today's topic, we're going to be talking about uh, the impact of uh, legislation, both at the local as well as state level and national level on the small business owner. The, we're also going to be uh, asking them about some of the COVID-19 uh, uh, issues that they've confronted as small business owners. 
Uh, and we're also going to get into some social issues, uh, issues with regard to how legislation impacts uh, not only them as builders, but also those of us who are private citizens. So welcome, gentlemen. Uh, Good morning. Thanks, Michael. Thank you uh, for the invite. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, uh, Emerson, uh, uh, Emerson III, uh, I normally just call them three and four. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, so Emerson three, let me start with you. Let me ask you this question, uh, as home builders, I know you and I have discussed prior to this program, uh, <laughs> that in many ways, the federal government has done a real poor job of looking at some of the things that could have been done with regard to infrastructure in response to the pandemic and some of the retrofitting that's been needed. And let's start with the schools which is near and dear to all of our hearts on this particular panel. Uh, it seems to me that uh, there was a, uh, and there still may be uh, an opportunity that's being missed, which is money from the federal government to help schools to retrofit in particular, much of their, uh, their air handling capacity. Can you, can you speak to how that has impacted you and the members of your association? Well, so mostly it's impacted us on our family level because a lot of our members are home builders and not on the commercial side. Um, but, um, you know, we, we see the need for so many upgrades and the fact that the federal government and the state hasn't put money into the school infrastructure, especially in this state, we have uh, uh, buildings that are so old and so antiquated. Um, they would never meet the standards that ASHRAE sets and that's the engineering standard by which air um, quality and air control um, goes under. Um, so they've got a lot of ground to make up. I mean, they're probably 30 years in arrears on, on most school buildings. On a positive note, most of what's being built today moving forward is trying to attain a net zero readiness stat status. So one of the things we're struggling with is net zero isn't really well defined, but you see these new high schools um, new um, middle schools and whatever being built to a net zero readiness standard so they can adapt with solar. You see it almost on every project, not to fully run it, but definitely um, complement it. So that's a great goal. And I'm glad to see that money. It is quite expensive, but the long-term benefits way outweigh the cost. Jeff, Emerson, you step uh, in a minute? Uh, Emerson Ford, it seems to me too that you, uh, because you work primarily uh, out in the field, uh, and you're working with the homeowners. Uh, what are some of the things that you've run into with regard to some of the uh, real challenges with regard to COVID-19 uh, as you go out as a small business owner and try to do work, but yet keep your workers and the homeowner safe? So keeping, keeping ourselves safe from everybody else has been the challenge because especially at a, a first meeting, you know, like, as you said, like, as we got to know you, we got to also know your, your life, basically, if you go out all the time, if you care about this virus, if you don't care, and if you care about the safety of others. So one of the difficult things meeting with a new client, especially is, I have no idea where they were even an hour before I met them. You know, and until I get to know them a little better, or my employees know them a little better, it's very hard to judge if you can you know, even go into their house safely. And the same thing goes with my employees. It's very difficult, especially at the beginning, because we were like developing 
how this virus worked and how it spread and and it's changed a million times. Uh, one of the difficult issues is I also can't keep track of my employees. So I have to guarantee my employees safety. And at the same time, I have to guarantee the homeowner safety and say that, no, we're all safe and you're safe. We're good. And uh, it's happened about twice now that, you know, one person went out and all of a sudden they were sick three days later. They didn't have COVID. It was just coincidence. But when one person does that, now we have 12 people sitting at home. Now I have to call five different clients and explain why this happened and how sorry I am. And that's been really difficult because I don't want to be the one to make that phone call. That must make Michael, for some aggravating. That must make for some aggravating stop and start. Well, if I can add to that, yes. the amount of business lost time that we've had this year between our employees and or inability to access projects um, or the homeowner having the COVID or signs of it has been staggering. Um, so we're actually trying to put an actual cost on that for further discussions with the Builders Association. So one of the things the Builders Association did early on though, uh, we worked with the governor's office um, um, a lot to keep construction of home uh, uh, homes essential. And basically because you know, people need housing, they're moving here for jobs, their their families are expanding or whatever. And so we put a lot of time into, we developed a COVID protocol to do on-job sites, which includes um, bringing a sink if there isn't one available, setting up sanitary facilities separate of any of the homeowners. Because a lot of time, if, if you're remodeling in somebody's house, they say, oh, use the half bath in the hallway. Well, we stopped doing that. So we put portalettes on every job. We put a sink set up with hand sanitizer, paper towels, and, and we also, uh, with the help of one of our builder members, him and his wife are really savvy about um, uh, video stuff. They put together a video education program that you can go and do, do it. Um, I believe it's an hour long and then there's a test after it and get basically a certification. And so when we turn a building permit in application and we hand that over to say, yep, we know what we're doing out there. And when you come out for your first inspection, you can see it all. And that's been a big deal. Well, it's also, you, you have to keep in mind the cost of doing business during this difficult time. Uh, a lot of people also took advantage of COVID. And when I say that, I'm specifically talking about our porta potty company when we decided to put bathrooms in everybody's house, which, you know, most people will let you use their facilities. And when this all came out, we were like, oh, you know what? We're just going to play it safe. We're going to have, uh, you know, restrooms delivered to every job. And the first bill, I think, that came in, they had more than doubled the price of the porta potty to be delivered, serviced. I mean, insane. And to think that our workflow has slowed down, you know, hourly, you know, we want everybody to be safe. And it's, it's very difficult because you can't rush and you can't be working at a fast pace when you're also trying to be clean, uh, keep the environment safe and follow these protocols and wash your hands. And it's a lot to follow and keep a, a good pace through the progress of the job. So losing time and money speed wise, and then also material costs went through the roof because they're not being manufactured as quickly. 
you know, uh, and a lot of people were home. So if you went into a, a regular store to buy any kind of material, um, you know, homeowners that are home doing nothing are finding projects. So a ton of materials were sold out all the time. And then when they get restocked, now they're twice the price. So we're losing money every day. We're paying more for building materials. And now we're paying more for services that were, you know, half of what they were last year. And that's been very difficult. You know, it's almost, you're wondering if it's more cost effective to just stay home, unfortunately. I wanted to jump in here, if, if I could. I wanted to jump back to something uh, that Emerson 3 had spoke about, uh, uh, school infrastructure. And I would say that, um, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that assessment that the Commonwealth is not keeping up with the infrastructure, especially the folks uh, here in Franklin who have seen us build uh, three new middle schools, uh, two new elementary schools, and a world-class uh, Franklin High School uh, within the last uh, 20 years. And uh, we were able to do that because the Commonwealth has the uh, Massachusetts School Building Authority. Uh, we have dedicated one cent of the sales tax from uh, all sales in uh, Massachusetts. It goes to the School Building Authority, which uh, is encouraging uh, towns to upgrade their infrastructure. And I know I can tell you from personal experience that Franklin has uh, vigorously taken advantage of that program and uh, has been able to uh, really upgrade uh, its infrastructure. So, and I've been around the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and I, I see a lot of uh, new school buildings out there. Yeah, there are old ones, uh, but we're making a, a pitch uh, to replace those. So, just curious where that comes from. Well, I did mention that you see the new schools being up to date and, and meeting those standards, but not every town, like I live in Northbridge, um, we don't have any new schools. We finally do have one combined campus being built now, so it's taking advantage of it, but every other building here is extremely old, probably 70 to 100 years. Um, so some of the smaller towns aren't doing that. I do yeah, see yeah. some of the ones I work a lot in Newton, Needham, uh, and you see some really fantastic schools going up there or being planned. So um, I, I think the, the, the new construction definitely fits your bill. And we've got to look at some of this old stuff that really needs to be updated. I mean, you look at the, the conversation in the Boston School District about how do you keep the schools um, uh, well ventilated now and to have the heat on full blast and all the windows open. Hardly, hardly a net zero uh, exercise. Not, not the preferred path. You know, um, <laughs> exactly. When you, when you talk about a town like Northbridge, and so just so it's, it's clear to everyone, these uh, projects originate at the local level. So you got to talk to your friends on the Northbridge School Committee and the Board of Selectmen and, uh, you know, clamor for new buildings. The state will come in and, uh, for example, Franklin, uh, building its new high school, got 60% of the cost of that facility was paid for by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, that, uh, I would say, was probably one of the biggest drivers of another influx of people into the community. Uh, and people, instead of sending their uh, children to private high schools, uh, were bringing them back 
the school was built for 1,650 kids. Uh, the day it opened, because so many kids were coming back, it opened at 1,730. It was over capacity uh, the day it opened. So, uh, and we've seen property values go through the roof in our community because it's known as a great community for education. So um, talk to your friends and uh, at the local level on uh, Northbridge and, and tell them about uh, the advantages of uh, new infrastructure and, and new schools and what they can do for a community. Yeah, but I think we're talking around the problem, guys, because, I mean, uh, Jay, if you're talking about normal times in terms of construction, what I was asking, and, and my question really was about the emergency that we're facing with COVID. If I've got an old building and I'm going to open schools, which is the uh, preferred method of most of us, we'd rather have the schools open. I can't just send those kids back in there. I mean, we did hit on it with, you know, with just the heat full blast and all of the, uh, all of the windows open because that's not effective or efficient. And I think Natalia can address this too, from the, from the standpoint of the CDC guidelines. Let's not talk about as if, if this is normal. What I'm saying is, is that the infrastructure should have been one of the items with regard to COVID that leads us into creating safe environments in the face of the pandemic. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, from the public health community, uh, ventilation has become um, a more recent call, but, you know, we've known about it. Dr. Allen at the Harvard School of Public, Harvard Chan School of Public Health has been talking about airflow basically having to be replaced four to five times per hour. So HVAC and, you know, seeing wealthy school districts and private schools um, put in, you know, put in this new technology or, or upgrade their technology and not seeing um, building and upgrading of, of all schools as part of a COVID plan, I think is what you're talking about, Michael. And, and I have been saying all along, schools just didn't get the attention they needed in, you know, March. And it's okay for a month or two, but we are still, you know, a year now into this pandemic. And many, many school districts have not been able to reopen. All of them, I think, have not been able to reopen to full capacity. And it's understandable, but um, I have been saying, you know, for the role that schools play, both for parents, both in terms of education, both in terms of the future of our country, there should have been a COVID school plan where the federal government was giving money and prioritizing, you know, all the buildings getting revamped. And, and Jeff, you can speak to the very little money that you got for any COVID response, I'm sure, at the Massachusetts level. But, but somehow, um, maybe with this administration, we can push for for making schools safe and the buildings is is one part of it. I also want to commend uh, Emerson the third and fourth for for providing you know a safe work environment. We know that workplaces is where a lot of people are getting sick and you know meatpacking district meatpacking plants and you know making sure that your employees have access to masks and water and and putting health first even though it's costly. I'm you know I'm I'm really as an epidemiologist I'm really happy to hear that that's the task you took and now calling on people like Jeff and our federal government to to make sure that that doesn't put you out of business. Well, it, it has been somewhat challenging, you know, um, um, to get a bunch of construction workers basically to think about washing their hands every hour. 
you know, you're lucky they do it after they use a restroom or go to lunch usually. So, you know, and then when it gets a little cold, it's kind of tough to put that 30 degree water on your hands and, and feel good about it. But um, they're really doing it. Um, one of the weird things that came up while we were working on the COVID task force uh, with the governor's office was somebody had suggested that all employees drive to work sites by themselves. And I said, wow, that sounds um, like it might be a safer idea, but let's take one of my main crews. First off, they're all family. They live in a three family building together. They have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together almost all the time. And the only thing, you know, we did have one employee that did not live with them. That was one of those guys that went out several times and caused us several 14 day shutdowns. And I basically with my foreman sat him down and said, if you're going to continue this lifestyle during a, a pandemic, you don't work for me, you know? And of course, that opens up a whole nother can of worms if I let them go for whatever uh, or for, you know, what what do I face as an employer? So luckily he kind of heeded our warnings and we've stopped that nonsense, but, uh, but um, there was some definitely dicey things. We also got hired to do um, some work on a project in Vermont, right when Vermont changed its rules. So here we are committed, we're three or four weeks in and, um, you know, but we were going solely to the job site working on a building, not around any other crews and whatever. So, you know, technically we were being as safe as anyone could be, but every time we drove home at night, we weren't, we weren't quarantining in another 14 days. I mean, you know, um, so re reality kind of has to set in. We didn't have, like I said, we were on a building by ourselves with no interaction with other folks. And again, these guys have been family living together, working together for the five years they've worked for me. So. Um, weird, weird stuff to talk about, and um, you know, to be on a call with uh, on a Sunday afternoon with Lieutenant Governor and Secretary Keneally and a few others uh, uh, getting grilled over this stuff was rather interesting. But uh, it was an hour and a half well spent, I think. I think everybody in this process has been learning from one another. Uh, you know, this is something that hasn't happened in a hundred years, and uh, it's been an educational process along the way. Uh, I'm just glad that uh, we take advantage of science in Massachusetts and uh, that we actually listen to the scientists here. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, the uh, governor's task force included folks like you, because uh, without your input uh, and without your understanding, you can't develop a sense of empathy and you can't develop the correct policies. So that's encouraging to hear and uh, it's encouraging to hear how uh, seriously uh, you're taking this pandemic in your work. And, and uh, to reiterate what Natalia said, uh, the safety of your employees is, is vital uh, to the success uh, in a pandemic. I'm hopeful uh, that uh, you know, we'll get this uh, vaccination program up and rolling and robust so that we will not be dealing with these, uh, these issues uh, in 2022. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have to keep everybody alive. We got to keep the lights on. We got to keep uh, people employed and we got to uh, keep people uh, energized to uh, keep our economy intact at the same time. So uh, I'm, I'm a willing partner. Interesting. Um uh, being back here in New England, I grew up in Connecticut, but um, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say I lived in Florida and built there for 25 years. And I look at how badly they're dealing with it. Um, the fact that their governor doesn't support science at all, their, 
a number of anti-maskers. You know, I still have family down there, and some of it elderly. Uh, my mother-in-law, aunt and uncle in their mid-80s, uh, you know, they can't go anywhere because of how many people are ignoring this totally. And you can see by their numbers, it's awful. I'm glad to say I'm here in Massachusetts where people actually believe science and do what's right. Behind you is a T-shirt that says, How Home Builders Support Housing Choice Initiative. Yes, sir. You, you, I'm sure you hang it up, hung it up for a reason. I did. Um, I was... Uh, during that call with the lieutenant governor or whatever, she noticed that as we were closing out the meeting. So I availed myself to send one to her and uh, Secretary Keneally. The governor had gotten his earlier on. But, uh, yeah, the housing choices. I'll to be me checking was, my mail for mine. There you go. <laughs> so housing choices just got passed. The governor Baker worked pretty hard on it. And we helped him for over two and a half years, I believe. We started you know, supporting this. And basically... What we saw was a lot of housing opportunities in small towns not getting passed, no affordable housing being done, uh, 40B stuff being kicked to the curb because it took a super majority of a vote. Um, so nearly impossible to get something done on a rezoning to get some housing in places. So housing choices changes that to a, uh, a simple majority. Um, and it became effective when the governor signed it. I think it's gonna be a big deal for you know housing advocates. and. You know, I, I, I almost kind of shudder when I talk about affordable housing because that's where I started when I opened my own business in 1993 with doing affordable housing. And um, I, I'm not sure what that is here in Massachusetts between the cost of land and the cost of construction. But we, we my son and I continue to look for opportunities that would, would be able to, you know, put some affordable housing out there. We're working on a redevelopment project in Winchester that will uh, include some affordable housing units. Let me follow up on on that. Uh, as an older person that has owned his house since 1964, I see what's happening in Dover and Needham and even in Franklin is homes are being bought only for the value of the land. And they're either being torn down or they're being renovated. The house next to me, when the lady passed away, the owner and her sons bought the house, uh, or inherited the house. They sold it for $220,000. It was assessed at $320,000. They remodeled the house at $60,000 and sold it for $365,000. When I went to the board of assessors and said, it's the same house, I want my house evaluated at $220,000, they said, no, this is a sale of convenience and we're not going to change the assessment. This is happening all over Newton, uh, Dover, Wellesley, Franklin. And I appealed to the State Board of Appeal. And they said, did they ever list the property with a real estate broker? And they did, as far as I didn't know the answer to that, I had no idea. Well, if they didn't, then the town is right. And if they did, okay, then maybe he would have ruled in my favor. There seems to be an enormous amount of either tearing down older homes or renovating. Could you address that? Well, we, we definitely see a lot of that um, um, going on. I mean, heck, I'm doing my own personal house, um, which in Douglas, 
um, which the original part of the house was built in 1790. So um, I, I, uh, I took it on. My wife had wanted nothing to do with it. Luckily for me, she's uh, got on board. She loves the new floor plan and what we've done. And we're about at the dry end stage, but I certainly have changed that value of the house that I bought around, I think at 230,000. Um, it will now appraise somewhere around four to 450 um, when I'm done. Um, you know, I needed the space. I have a blended family that lives with me and we see a lot of that going on. So I do see a lot of expansions because people are 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 living um, together. Um, sometimes three generations. We're working with a family in uh, in uh, Weston that is got, they're in an older home. Um, I want to say it was built in 1911, um, and it's been patched together and patched on. But she's actually looking for us to take some of that patchwork off and rebuild new because um, you've got basically three generations living under the same roof and they want their own privacy and whatever. And uh, so we're working with them through the process. So we're seeing a lot of that. Um, I don't know how the valuation as you're talking is, is being affected other than obviously the new stuff they're, they're putting new numbers on. One of the issues that we're, we uh, being the Builders Association is trying to address is some of the new codes and the new energy stuff which is absolutely pushing the price of new housing or even reconstructed housing way through the roof, that the appraisal process almost always lags behind it by years, typically three to five years. So you end up having somebody that really has a difficult time making sense of it with a lender for what we have to do in their house. Um, so we're, we're actually gonna reach out to a couple of different associations. We had a board meeting by Zoom on Tuesday and to talk specifically about this and see how we can get help there. Um, and we may look to the legislature to help us out with some kind of you know, process or whatever um, to, to affect that, because that's a big deal. Natalia, have you seen any movement in population because of the coronavirus in housing specifically? Well, there's a lot of interesting data. One is that about uh, 40 million Americans are benefiting from the eviction moratoria and, you know, that that was necessary as part of the COVID plan and response. A lot of, you know, people have been said, you know, you, we're not going to evict you. And we don't know how, when that comes to an end, but a very large number of uh, American renters are not able to pay their full rent. So there's something to be said about housing stability as part of COVID. Those who have the means and who have wealth and those who have been living in cities like New York City have left. Uh, you know, there are, I, anecdotally, I don't know the data, have left to have more space or to be, uh, as Emerson mentioned, in multi-generational homes with, with support. You know, I, I'm a mom of three young kids, a seven-year-old and three-year-olds who are often on school and you know it would be amazing to have my parents supporting me you know like this it sounds like a dream and i think people who have been able to to figure out a way to move and get those supports or to get outdoor space you know because you want the kids to be running outside so but it's important to highlight that that's a privilege and that's a privilege of the few who have the means to move during a pandemic i mean the cost and the ability to do it in a, in a safe way and so when we're talking about um what housing advocates have been pushing for is to make sure that people aren't made homeless during a pandemic because that costs lives. It, it really does. And so I, um, you know, the COVID public health community and the housing community 
don't always talk to each other, but it's interesting, even in, in the vaccination policy right now, homeless shelters and, you know, making sure that they get priority in Massachusetts for, for vaccines, because like other congregate settings has been, a, a, you know, a, a good policy decision. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how uh, policies that don't typically intersect are really uh, intersecting right now during this emergency and this crisis. You know, one of the things that I've seen uh, from a social uh, and economic and equity standpoint during the virus is the inequity between those who can afford to move out of high density uh, areas, I think, as you were mentioning, Natalia, and then those who are left behind. And I've often wondered why it is that in a country like ours, we don't take advantage of abandoned buildings that can be refurbished uh, to try to make either not just low cost, but free housing for those who just can't afford it. Um, and maybe uh, uh, Emerson, you and your son can address the idea that uh, is there a need for uh, what I would call pro bono work or do builders do pro bono work in terms of helping get people off the streets and into uh, housing? Well, I would say typically the number, you know, when you get into regulations in different towns and different rules, every, every, every place you step foot, Wow, it's it's challenging. It's staggering to me. So one of the things we are seeing is the adoption of what they call an ADU or accessory dwelling units. So towns, and I think within the Boston um, metropolitan region, there's about 37 towns that or cities that have bought into the ADU um, uh, agenda for a zoning code. So that allows you to build an attached or detached um, residents, additional residents, whether it's an in-law suite or a for rent apartment. Um, it could be either. There's a bunch of different um, criteria you have to meet, but almost out of the 37, um, short of seven, I think it's about 30 or 31 that have made so many caveats to these things that it's almost impossible to fit within the within the space. So they've created this square square peg and we we've got a round, you know, a round hole or whatever. Um, so um, I have done two of them. Uh, one of them was in um, in uh, Natick, and it was an easy process to do and build, and it was for somebody to move their mother-in-law in. Uh, I did another one in Newton, and I may have been one of the first to be done in Newton, but uh, the process to just obtain a building permit for this was over six months. It took me less time to build the thing. And in the meantime, I had uh, somebody waiting to move their 84-year-old mother-in-law into a place. And uh, it really created a hardship. Um, you know, and, and Newton's been kind of almost the poster child for how not to do it. Um, uh, then we are trying to, you know, talk to their development folks. How do we fix this? Because a lot of people have that need to move a family member into the property and, and do this. And they have the property. They have the infrastructure. But um, the roadblocks that towns put up to this stuff is is almost staggering. So, you know, I've actually had, and you've probably heard the buzzword, tiny houses. I've had inquiries about somebody wanting to do a tiny house, which is typically under 1,200 square feet. The Massachusetts Code is just finally introducing that 
but most towns have not yet allowed it. So that's kind of an interesting caveat. I actually have one representative, one of his aides uh, and his um, uh, girlfriend want to do that, but somewhere within the 495 corridor uh, on a single piece of land, they just want to live as minimalists and they're pretty much prohibited from that right now. So we'll have to see where that goes. But those are housing ideas that, you know, could really catch on. Um, you know, when you talk about public housing, I actually spent a year in Africa, Michael, you're aware of this, and and we converted, um, I was with a company that converted shipping containers into living spaces. Um, and you see that in other states, Vermont allows it right now, I think New Hampshire does. Um, we actually have a school program that is building one, but they are actually providing it to a veteran in another state because they can't set it here in Massachusetts for somebody. So here we got an educational program, kids looking to learn trades and get into it, building a tiny house and it can't stay here in Massachusetts. I think that's a shame. I'm sure we have veterans that could use a place to live. And um, um, it's been done successfully around the country with um, with tiny house campuses. Um, but even to approach it here, the amount of pushback, um, I've been talking about it with our executive officer in Bragby, the Boston Builders Group, and trying to get some foot holds to it and um boy it's it's a slam door almost when you start talking it's an interesting uh topic you bring up um i haven't really it's not been brought to my attention and i'd love to uh explore it further with you uh because one of the things that really um really touches me uh as as a representative is the need for more public housing uh the waiting lists uh in a community like franklin are incredibly long uh and we could build uh, a 200 unit structure tomorrow and have that filled and still have a waiting list uh so i would love to explore further with you ways that we can get people uh into homes um, and, you know, I, I know we've tried desperately to change some of the zoning uh, requirements uh, here in Franklin. We're uh, seeing a lot more transit-oriented development that's uh, taking place uh, along uh, train lines. Uh, and uh, we're actually seeing some developments going in our downtown area, which happens to be very close to the train station. Uh, so I do see a movement in that direction. Um, but uh, we definitely need, definitely need more. And, and you say the word affordable, and, and, and I'm with you on what does that mean? Because uh, we have a lot of affordable housing here in, in Franklin, but when an affordable house has rent of $2,000 a month, I'm not certain that that meets what I would think uh, is a true definition of affordable. Uh, to me, affordable is uh, a percentage of what you're uh, able to pay. Uh, so uh, great topic, great conversation. I look forward to exploring it further with you. you know, I have to I, jump off and uh, I will see you all uh, next week. Thank you. You know, I'm, uh, and I'm sorry Jeff had to leave, but because uh, this actually was, I'm, I'm getting ready to throw out something that I think is a challenge to all of our legislative members, which is that uh, I'm doing some consulting work for the state of Alabama, and uh, Emerson, you bring up the idea that not only should there be more engagement with regard to apprenticeships and uh, vocational training, but in Alabama, we're trying to put that to the test to where uh, 
we're changing not only the idea that this should be something at the high school level, but that we ought to be showing high school kids uh, career paths that they can start on, whether it's high school and then continue post-secondary. And we're also, and I know me as an academic and a higher ed person, I'm trying to change the lexicon. The idea that college is not for everyone, we ought to take that out of our speech patterns. Uh, Because it's not a matter of no college or college. It's a matter of lifelong learning. And colleges and community colleges are only an avenue to provide some of that lifelong learning. There are other means. Uh, Unions provide internships and they provide mentoring. Uh, There are certifications that people can get that you can go to, whether it's a four-year institution, just to take a couple of courses to get those certifications or just go through a certificate program. And what we need to start to do is understand (laughs) that the future is really going to be based upon students who look at their career paths (laughs) as uh, uh, as an elongated lifelong learning project. Let me give you just one quick example and then have you guys react to this. Uh, my mechanic, who is uh, extremely talented here in Franklin, and those folks over there continually have to upgrade their skills. They have to recertify. Uh, and I'm sure Emerson's, you know, you guys are seeing this even in your profession, because as you get new materials, you get new methodologies, uh, you know, the people have to get upgraded in terms of their training and their skills. Well, some of that may require going back to uh, an institution of higher learning. And what we're not doing is showing people that, you know what, an internship or mentorship coming back for certificates is valuable, regardless of where you go for those. Um, And that as you continue in that profession, you may want to upgrade uh, from just being an auto mechanic to being an auto uh, engineer, auto mechanic engineer. All right. And there are various levels of that leading up to and including master's and doctoral degrees. So what do you guys think about this idea of us stopping this language that college is not for everyone and starting the lexicon that the idea is lifelong learning because it's going to be relatively for sure that no profession is going to be one where you walk in the door, uh, let's say at 21, and then you don't have to do any other learning for the rest of your career for the next 30 years. So our, our industry usually does a pretty good job with that, um, with technologies, with continuing education um, that we constantly do. But there is a learning gap there. And we have figured out that, you know, when you bring a program to a trade school, um, we don't want a plumber just knowing how to put the pipes together. We want him to know how to show up at Michael's house, ring the doorbell, introduce himself and, and, and handle himself properly. Or if he takes the client to lunch to... We, we literally, one of our courses in Florida was on etiquette. And uh, so you're taking a bunch of rural uh, met young men and women in Florida who, who are now having to sit down at a table and entertain somebody over lunch because maybe that's one day a superintendent's going to do that. So it's not just only the skill trading. We, we're trying to look at the whole thing. You're right about product too. Uh, products and new uh, um, processes are 
uh, always a tough hill to overcome. We're all moving so quickly, um, but our continuing education definitely does that. Um, I just recently did some, it was an online presentation. It was from a, a Western Mass Builders Association. And I was so impressed with the guy that was the instructor. Um, he's an engineer by trade, he's a builder. And he was talking about um, really minutia in waterproofing um, when you, when you, you know, water infiltration, we all remember 2014 and 15 and the ice dam debacle. How do we, how do we keep that from happening as we move forward or as we retrofit houses? And there is an awful lot of science and technology behind it, but you got to get out there and learn it. And so we try to push that all the time. Uh, we don't want guys just doing the same course every, every other year, just to check off a box. We want you actually learning stuff. And we're trying to bring through the NAHB program that we bring to schools. That's, that is part of it. Cause it's a, every time a new product comes out, there's a new way to install it. Um, there's a, obviously a wrong way to install it. And uh, we want to make sure that's, that's a big deal. One of the things that Emerson and I do is absolute oversight with our guys. And, uh, and we basically are both carpenters by trade. And uh, we've taken our guys that mostly were um, roofers and siding guys and uh, got them to be, you know, framing carpenters, interior guys. They do, we do, you know, really ornate kitchen and cabinet work that five years ago, these guys never saw the inside of the house. They were always on the roof and doing siding. So training's a big deal. It costs us a lot of money. Uh, we're out of the office on job sites a lot, but. Uh, Michael can attest to the end results uh, where, you know, his, his kitchen happens to be one of my favorite jobs to, to uh, spotlight. It's a, it's a beautiful space. And I think uh, the build went, went fairly well. And if I may, one of my favorite points at Michael's house was the, the glitter that we put in the grout. Fantastic idea. Uh, I must admit that came to me, uh, just walking through uh, one of the uh, big box stores when I saw some glitter and then I saw a bag of grout and uh, it just hit me all at once. Hey, why not put the two together? Uh, and you guys did a fantastic job. Thank you very much. And as, as my final kind of question to you guys, I, you know, it seems to me that we've got a long way to go before we first overcome the virus and help small business people to get back to some normalcy. Uh, so if you guys had to say, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to, uh, whether from the government or whether from vaccines or whatever, what are you guys looking forward to in order to help you get back to some normalcy as a small business owner? Um, well, I think right now our, probably our biggest challenge to production is, uh, is the manufacturing sector because of what they're having to do in manufacturing plants and keeping people apart and whatever, our lead times have gotten ridiculously crazy. And of course they have people out with COVID or, or think they have in quarantining. Um, um, so that those challenges right now are really uh, um, an amazing mountain to overcome. I just ordered windows for a project and normally you'd be four to six weeks. Uh, the manufacturers um, here, their plant is actually in, in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Um, and uh, that right now is 12 to 16 weeks. So almost before I signed the contract, I should have ordered the material already, right? Um, I'm, I'm ready to sign up another major remodel and, uh, and we'll be 12 weeks before we see the cabinetry for that project. I mean, that's crazy. That's just nuts. 
And, and again, some of it's diminished capacity because of COVID, spacing because of COVID, different things. And, and quite frankly, there are products you can't even get. Um, certain sizes they're not making because in the plant they'd have to have people closer than six feet apart. And, you know, plants are concerned about their health and they're also concerned about employees suing them, which, uh, you know, I don't know if you get COVID somewhere and my son went through it, it was awful for him. But to try to pin down who or where you may have gotten it is to me almost an impossible task. So, but the man, that's, that's I, I think our biggest thing. And then pricing, um, you know, we just saw lumber, the, the Canadian tariff get cut in half. We saw a little bit um, come down in lumber pricing, but um, it went up, it almost quadrupled in 2020. So in early um, January, lumber pricing goes by an index for a uh, million board feet. And I wanna say it was somewhere around 295. Um, and in November and December, it, went, it was at 985. And you could see that in the cost of a two by four. If you go to Lowe's, we used to buy them for $3.29. They're about six, six and change now for a two by four. So, you know, and that cost is absorbed somewhere. So I actually have houses that I won't give somebody a final price until a month before we're gonna start it. And it's got an index on it of what I'm paying for lumber and commodity materials. And if it goes up, they gotta pay me more money. If it goes down, I give them something back. Um, it's not an easy conversation to have with people. Sell a job with a with a question mark on any of this, and people are like, "Well, you know, how, how how do you not know how much the house will cost today?" And then we have to explain to them these same things, and you know, maybe it makes sense to some people because they understand the issues that we're facing, and to other people, it sounds like a scam, and you know, we're just looking to make more money. But you know, at the end of the day, you can't actually price something until the day we sign the project you know just like he i'm doing the same thing at my house and the biggest question marks i had were cost of materials if i order them today or if i wait a week are they going up are they going down and none of the manufacturers know uh specifically because they don't know their wait times they don't know when they'll have them built uh the color choices have been a, an issue you know, they're only making the most popular colors. Anything outside of that special order, they might not even be manufacturing it at all. So how do you sell a job with, uh, you don't even know when we can have the material? Have the Home Builders Association, for any reason, received direct money because of the COVID virus or because of the uh, uh, bills that the federal government uh, passed uh, to bail out industry? No, the association, because of their, I think it's 501c3, was not able to. It kind of fell into the crack like churches did for a while. I think they remedied it for churches, but uh, I don't believe either our local or state was able to get any funds. And how about direct private companies? Oh, I think, I, I think a lot of our members were able to do uh, the PPP loans um, successfully, and that was helpful. Um, uh, we, we did, and it was able to keep our guys going at a time that, you know, production certainly did not pay for itself, but I was able to keep, you know, six men in the field working, uh, earning a living, staying in their houses and paying taxes. So, uh, I will tell you our bottom line for 2020 for my son and I as partners looks, um, 
pretty bleak, but I will tell you, we kept our whole workforce going with the help of that loan. It, now, you mentioned it as a loan. Is there, are you really going to have to pay it back, or is there some part of forgiveness of the loan? Um, the, the initial uh, PPP was fully forgiven because we exceeded what our goals were to uh, keep people working. And so it's based on your payroll and your actual payroll moving forward for the next, uh, um, I think it's 16 weeks. And so we chronicled that and whatever. There is a small offset for uh, office expenses and other things other than payroll, but you know, to keep five or six talented, well-paid guys out in the field, uh, that ate it up pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely a good program. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at my guys being able to stay working and stay in their houses. That's a huge deal, man. And pay their mortgages or their rents. Um, that's, that was a, that's a big deal. I'm glad, you know, finally, you know, we've all seen in the past back in 08 and 09 and 10, the bailouts of big companies or whatever, at least the PVP did reach out to a lot of small companies. Well, do we have uh, any particular closing uh, comments from anyone? Yeah, I'll jump in here. Uh, I know from a uh, from a social and political standpoint, I'm uh, number one. I want to thank uh, the Emersons for coming on today and joining us. Uh, you guys are not only talented, but you're also very knowledgeable, uh, and you represent the association extremely well. Going forward, I'm still concerned that here it is we're the richest country in the world, and yet we have people who live under uh, overpasses, who live in tents. Uh, when there are great people like you guys who I think have the talent to go and help to not only renovate, but put up housing where we can get folks off the street. Uh, and at some point, I think we ought to really, uh, uh, with Jeff and with others, talk to political leaders about why this is not an initiative that the builders, the local uh, entities and the politicians don't try to address so that we don't come across as a heartless, uncaring society. Um, and going forward, I think uh, it's one of the issues that I know is near and dear to my heart and stuff. So I hope at some point we can come back and address specifically the idea that as a country, we can afford to get people off the streets and we need to start to do it. Amen. Well, I thank you for inviting us. Um, um, on um, and to have this discussion. It's an important discussion. And I will tell you that anytime you want to continue this, I'll be glad to make myself available. I love the opportunity to, you know, to talk to people that have like ideas and maybe can shine some light on how we can get this done and get it going. Well, this is uh, Frank Falvey uh, thanking the uh, Emerson Klaus, the third and the fourth, and uh, thanking uh, Michael Walker Jones for inviting them and uh, our representative, Jeff Roy, and also Natalia Linos, our epidemiologist, and our great, as I began the program saying, the greatest editorial writer in the United States, PJ. So uh, wishing uh, all of you a, a healthy and a happy day. Uh, this is your host, Frank Falvey, for toward a more perfect union. Uh, hope you all turn in next week uh, to hear the next in a series of this ongoing panel discussion.
And if you'd like to express some thoughts or provide some feedback on More Perfect Union, we'd love to hear from you. Here at Franklin TV and WFPR-FM, you can write us at info, I-N-F-O, at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Peter J. and this is Franklin Public Radio.